0: Welcome to History of Europe, Kibato, the Siege of Kazan of 1552, part one of three. The modern city of Kazan is situated in the middle Volga River basin, some 715 kilometres or 445 miles east of Moscow. It is the capital of the Republic of Tatarstan, and the eighth most populous city in Russia. With a rich Islamic heritage, an estimated 55% of the population today of Tatarstan is Muslim, the rest mostly Orthodox Christians. The region boasts numerous great mosques, both ancient and modern, including the most important and magnificent mosque in Russia, the Khalil Sharif Mosque, in the city of Kazan. The sharif is one of the largest mosques in Russia and Europe, and as well as a place of worship, today serves as a museum and also as a symbol of the Tartar people, descendants of the Mongols who once ruled the region. The existing Khol-e-Sharif Mosque was constructed between 1996 and 2005. Although its look is very modern, its design is inspired by a mosque which stood in the same location in the 15th century, when the city was the capital of a khanate a successor to the Golden Horde. It is named after its leading teacher, Khan Sharif, who is said to have died trying to save the mosque from an army of Ivan the Terrible in the year 1552. For centuries the site remained empty until recently when with the help of many other countries including Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates the mosque was rebuilt to its former glory. Today it is a popular tourist destination and is part of the Kazan Kremlin UNESCO World Heritage Site. The history of the Kazan region goes back to the volga Bulgars, who created a thriving state in the middle Volga region in the 8th century AD. As described in an earlier podcast on the Battle of the Klydon Pass 1014, The Bulgars were originally a Turkic people, who in the 6th and 7th century lived north of the Black Sea in a confederation known as Old Great Bulgaria. However, in the late 7th century, under pressure from competing tribes, they dispersed, some ending up in Italy, others in the region of modern-day Bulgaria, and others along the Volga. The Volga Bulgars grew wealthy on trade between Europe and the Middle East resulting in the establishment of significant towns with fine public buildings. Many of these towns had impressive fortifications, sometimes with stone towers, and also impressive mosques and public baths. In September 1223, the Volga Bulgars faced the immense challenge of having to confront an army of Mongols. The great army of Subutai in Dubai had already caused devastation as far east as the Pontic Steppe north of the Black Sea and defeated a combined Russian army at the Battle of the Kalka River in 1223, as described in a previous podcast. As they headed back home to Mongolia they suffered a rare defeat when they were ambushed by an army of vulgar Bulgarians. The Mongol leadership were furious and and determined not only to avenge their defeat, but to make the volga Bulgars an example to any other group who were considering standing in their way. Three years later, they launched a massive campaign against the land of Volga-Bulgaria, which lasted for five years. In resulting slaughter, scholars estimate up to 80% of the population to have been murdered, writes Shalpovsky and Nikol in their book, Armies of the volga Bulgars in the Khanate of Kazan. The Mongols then subjugated the volga Bulgars and divided their territory into several vassal states. In spite of the carnage, the surviving urban population gradually returned to their homes and regained much of their prosperity by the middle of the 14th century. However, in the late 14th century, the Bulgar state was devastated by repeated attacks from both the Mongols and Russian principalities. Each feared the Volga Bulgars would become allies of the other and coveted the wealth of the middle Volga region for themselves. Over the decades, the Bulgars gradually lost their sense of identity. More and more, they identified themselves with their conquerors and even began to call themselves Tatar Mongols. In the 1430s, the Bulgar state finally collapsed completely and its capital, the city of Bulgar, was destroyed though in its place rose in prominence a new town called Kazan, which was initially known as New Bolgar. In either 1437 or 1438, the city of Kazan was conquered by Ulugh Muhammad, the deposed Khan of the Golden Horde, who then established the Khanate of Kazan as a separate entity. This occurred in a period when the previously mighty Golden Horde was beginning to disintegrate into separate Muslim Khanates, such as the Khanate of Crimea, the Khanate of Siberia, the Nurgay Horde north of the Caspian Sea, and the Khanate of Astrakhan at the mouth of Volga as it reaches the Caspian Sea. All these splinter states were centred on a permanent capital, except for the Nurgay Horde, which I will discuss now for a moment. The Nogai horde were a nomadic confederation of numerous Turkic and Mongol tribes that roamed largely to the east of the Volga, along the banks of the Yaik, down to where it joins the Caspian Sea. The most distinct feature of the Nogais was neither their language nor a different way of life. Rather, it was the ruling dynasty whose descendants derived their origin from their founder, a military commander of the Golden Horde named Edigei. In unwritten but clearly understood rules throughout the Turco-Mongol world, only the descendants of Genghis Khan were considered the heirs to any parts of the old Mongol Empire. Since Edige was not a descendant of Genghis Khan, the Nogai rulers were, unlike their noble brethren in Crimea, Kazan, Astrakhan and Siberia, ineligible to claim the inheritance of the Golden Horde. Still, although the Nogais lacked great ambitions and lacked real central control, they were fearsome warriors, potentially useful as allies and dangerous as enemies. Positioned at the juncture of the Volga and Kama rivers, the Khanate of Kazan commanded a tribute, including luxury furs from surrounding tribes, and dominated the passes across the Ural Mountains, leading to western Siberia. The city of Kazan became a major commercial centre, whose goods from Siberia and the Caspian region were exchanged for Russian and European goods channelled through Muscovy. The new khans of Kazan used their realm as a base from which to make regular raids into Russian territory. Their principal aim in these raids was to capture men, women and children and sell them as slaves. In the spring of 1445, they even captured the Grand Prince of Moscow, Vasily II, and forced a huge ransom for his release. Two years later, in 1447, uruk Mohammed's sons, Kasim and Yakub, were instrumental in helping Vasily II secure the throne of Moscow in a Russian civil war of succession. This demonstrates that Tatar authority and military strength continued to have decisive effects on Russian affairs during the middle of the 15th century. The period, however, does mark the beginning of a turning point in relations between the Tatars and increasingly confident Russians. The event which reflects this change best is when, in around 1452, Grand Prince Vasily II granted Kasim, one of the sons of uruk Muhammad, some territory on the Oka River, which quickly evolved into a small state known as the Khanate of Kasimov, situated between the larger Khanates and Muscovy. This small Khanate effectively became a dependency of Moscow, and pushed Moscow's influence eastwards. In the late 1450s and 1460s, Moscow initiated several military campaigns into territory claimed by the Kazan Khanate. Janet Martin, in her book Medieval Russia 980-1584, disputes the opinion sometimes put forward by some historians that Muscovy's policy towards Kazan was aimed purely at defending itself against a hostile neighbour. Rather, she writes, Moscow's primary aim was to actively subdue tribes in the region and divert tributes to their own coffers, as well as to acquire increased control over trade routes currently exploited by Kazan. Another primary motivation for Moscow to conquer Kazan, put forward by Isabel to Madariaga in her biography of Ivan IV, was quote, "...the deeply felt desire to be free from the humiliating vassalage that had been endured for more than 250 years, and to turn the tables on those who had once been Russians' masters." End quote. Moscow had a complex relation with the Khanates to her south and east, which were at least as important as her relations with her western neighbours. The Russians shared the same heritage of the Golden Horde and knew intimately the political systems and traditions of these steppe lands. Robert O'Cromney in his book The Formation of Muscovy thirteen oh four to sixteen thirteen describes the relationship as follows Quote, Knowledge of the Tartar world was essential, for so the Carnates could be valuable allies or the most dangerous of enemies. Russians and Tatars shared a common interest in the security of the trade routes to the eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East. Moreover, Muscovy and the Khanates all needed to channel the restless energy of the nomads of the steppes. On the negative side, the warlord aristocrats who dominated the political life of the Carnates had a vested interest in a state of undeclared war with Russia and other societies north of the grasslands. The slave trade played an important part in the Khanates' economy. Thus, even when Muscovy and the Khanates were officially at peace, Tartar raiding parties might well strike unprotected frontier districts and carry off much of their population." Because of the constant threat of this type of raiding, much of the steppe lands between Russia and Tartar control became a sparsely settled or an entirely uninhabited no-man's land known as the Wild Fields. Grand Prince Vasily II's successor, Ivan III, known also as Ivan the Great, gave priority to his relations with Kazan in the first years of his reign. When he agreed to help Khan Kazim of Kasimov win the throne of Kazan, he sparked off the hard fought Russo Kazan War of 1467 to 69. This ended in September 1469 when Russian troops were able to besiege Kazan and by cutting off the city's water supply forced its people to agree to a treaty beneficial to Moscow and the release of many Russian prisoners. While Ivan III of Moscow steadily extended his realm and also centralised authority within it, the Khanate of Kazan suffered from chronic instability, a series of conspiracies and disputed successions. In 1478, Ivan launched another major campaign, took control of the city and put his own man on the throne. Although Moscow did not retain control of Kazan, Ivan from this time on added Duke of Bulgaria to his numerous other titles. Two other of the more powerful local khanates were more of a threat to Moscow than Kazan, namely the Khanate of Crimea and the Great Horde, which was the remnant of the Golden Horde. In about 1460, the energetic Khan Ahmed took control of the Great Horde, and quickly made clear his ambition to make himself suzerain of all the Golden Horde's successors. Ahmed was a formidable figure, whose fighting force probably outnumbered any other in the Tatar world. In 1468, those forces raided the Riazan area, and for the next four years continued to raid Muscovite frontier posts. The Crimean Khanate was formed in 1449 by Khan Haji Jirai, whose personal authority came from being a descendant of Genghis Khan. The Jurai dynasty, which he founded, ended up surviving in Crimea until the late 18th century. He established his capital at Bakhchisurai in the centre of the Crimean peninsula, but he also made legal claims to the whole of the Golden Horde. A small Tatar population had settled in Crimea, where there was already a highly mixed population, including Genoese, Greeks, Armenians, Georgians and Jews. The capture of Constantinople by the Ottoman Turks in 1453 radically altered the balance of power in the Black Sea. The Sultan Mehmet II embarked on a campaign to establish Ottoman hegemony over the region. In 1475, Turkish forces arrived in Crimea and captured all the peninsula's major ports, including the important Genoese trading post of Kaffa. The Sultan claimed that he was the political heir of the Golden Horde and, backed by overwhelming military force, was able to dictate terms to the Jurai rulers of the Crimean Khanate. The Ottomans assumed direct control of the Black Sea coastline of Crimea, but the rest of the peninsula was left under the authority of the Crimean Khan. The Jirai dynasty enjoyed a special relationship with the Ottoman sultans. Since they were direct descendants of Genghis Khan, the Ottomans used their connection with the Crimean Khanate to legitimise their claims over the central Asian Turkic world. Therefore, in contrast to other Ottoman vassal states which were forcibly required to pay tribute and supply troops to the sultan, the Jirai dynasty were allowed special benefits. The Ottomans provided the Crimean Khans with an annual pension rather than payment going the other way around. And also, whenever the Ottomans needed troops from the Crimea, they made a request or invitation, not an order to the Khan. Trade rapidly increased between the region north of the Black Sea and Constantinople, with the former exporting grain, meat and salt. To help achieve this, the Crimeans placed more of their lands under cultivation. They also intensified their raids into lands of their northern neighbours, Lithuania and Muscovy, to take captives who would be employed as slaves in these enterprises. The Crimean Khanate and Moscow had one thing above all in common, they were both locked in a struggle to kind of territory they claimed as historically theirs. In the case of Moscow it was the lands of Kievan Rus, which were now under Polish-Lithuanian rule or well, for the Crimeans, it was a fight for the inheritance of the former Golden Horde. The two sides were in negotiation over an alliance in the 1470s, but Grand Prince Ivan III was at first unwilling to agree to break ties with Khan Ahmed of the Great Horde, Crimea's enemy. Finally though, in 1480, Ivan agreed to close the ties with Crimea. boosted by recent successes against the city of Novgorod, but wary of an alliance between Poland-Lithuania and the Great Horde, Ivan accepted. He did so, confident that the ruler of Crimea, Khan Mengri-Jurai, after earlier crises, was now firmly on the throne, thanks to the support of the Ottomans. The main advantage of the alliance for Ivan Third was that Crimean raids would be channelled away from Moscow and towards the Polish-Lithuanian borders. This became particularly important in the Russo-Lithuanian Wars, described in an earlier podcast. The Risk for Ivan was a joint military campaign by the Lithuanians and Great Horde against Moscow. Indeed, in the summer of 1480, Khan Ahmed, unhappy with irregular payments of tribute from Moscow, launched a military campaign against Ivan. Ahmed had agreed to join forces with Poland-Lithuania, but in the end his allies never turned up. They were diverted by Crimean-Tartar raids on their southern border, and by a conspiracy against King Casimir. When the army of the Great Horde reached the banks of the Ugra River, a tributary of the Oka, they came across a large force of Muscovite troops gathered on the opposite bank. Crossing the river would have been potentially dangerous, so Ahmed waited for his allies to arrive, while his troops plundered the surrounding areas. As winter approached, and it became clear that his allies were not coming, Armut decided to turn back and return home. Contemporary writers criticised Ivan for not launching an attack himself, although to have done so would have been very risky. Subsequent Russian accounts, however, from the next century, claim the standoff of the Ugra River to be a pivotal event in Russian, if not world, history, held as the moment when Ivan the Great, by standing firm against the mighty army of the Great Horde, once and for all threw off the Tartar yoke. To this day, therefore, the event has assumed great symbolic significance as part of the narrative, along with the Battle of Kulikova of Moscow's rise to power and the people's freedom from outside oppression. Donald Ostrovsky, in The Cambridge History of Russia, Volume 1, is more critical of this view. He claims the standoff at the Ugra was a minor affair, changing relations between Muscovy and the Great Horde little, if at all. And that the shift in balance of power, real as it was, was a more gradual process. Although he does note that it was the last time that an army of the Great Horde attacked Muscovy. It is also possible that Khan Ahmed and his men were content with the results of the expedition, having acquired much plunder from the Russian countryside. Also, the real reason for the retreat may have been used an army of the Nogai Horde were about to attack Great Horde territory. Probably more important than the standoff at the Ugr River was that Khan Ahmed died shortly afterwards, in early January 1481, in a skirmish with the Nogai Horde. The resulting succession crisis greatly weakened the Great Horde, which never regained its former glory. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. However, there was another Carnate which, as the Great Horde declined, was in the ascendancy, the Crimean Carnate, and in the long term were to become the most serious rival of Moscow for control of the steppe lands north of the Black Sea. In the late 15th century, however, Moscow and Crimea were allies, which gave the Russians the benefit of diverting Crimea-Tatar raids against Poland-Lithuania. Almost every year saw a Crimean-Tatar incursion into Polish lands, which at that time extended south as far as the Black Sea. Also in this period, the Crimeans' main ally, the Ottomans, became fierce rivals of the Kingdom of Poland, as both sides started to dispute lands in between them, notably the Lower Danube and Moldavia. Moscow and Crimea collaborated closely on various projects. In 1486, for example, Ivan III helped the Khan of Crimea, Menghidu Jurai, place his stepson, Mohammed Amin, on the throne of Kazan. In the late 1490s, Moscow again became involved in Kazan affairs when Muhammad Amin was overthrown, so helping uphold the dynastic interests of the Crimean Khans in Kazan. Throughout this time, Kazan continued to be plagued by political instability and interference by its neighbours. Moscow's alliance with the Crimean Tatars was especially useful during the Russo-Lithuanian Wars of 1500-1503, to 1503, as described in a previous podcast. Grand Prince Ivan III acquired large parts of Lithuania, taking advantage of the duchy having to defend its southern borders against repeated Tatar raids. Russian success, however, sowed the seeds for later problems in the alliance with Crimea. Also, Ivan's subsequent truce with Duke Alexander of Lithuania complicated his relationship with Mengli Gerai. One difficulty was that the Crimean Tatars... Accustomed to raiding Lithuanian territory, did not take account of the fact that large areas of the steppes now came into Muscovite possession, and continued their raiding anyway. Another significant event occurred in June 1502, when an army of Crimean Tatars annihilated an army of the Great Horde. With that defeat, the Great Horde was effectively destroyed as a political force. Moscow and Crimea no longer shared the same enemies, and so relations began to become more strained. Ivan Third's son and successor, the II, reigned 1503 to 1533, continued the alliance and the encouragement of the Communes to invade Poland Lithuania, but he failed to cultivate goodwill as assiduously as his father had done. In particular, he was more reluctant to send rich presents, considering that this was the same as paying tribute, such as Muscovy had paid to the Golden Horde for so many decades and so the shape of power politics in the region changed significantly in the second decade of Vasily's reign. Khan Mengli-Jurai of Crimea was angry with Vasily for the reduced payments, and also for Moscow's refusal to help militarily against the Khanate of Astrakhan, whose lands the Crimeans coveted. Another bone of contention was Vasily's refusal to hand over Mengli stepson, Abdul Latif, who was held prisoner in Muscovy, until his mysterious death in 1517. From the Crimean point of view, they had now ceased their raids against Poland and Lithuania, in return for lavish annuities and presents from the Polish king. They considered that if the Russians wanted stability along their southern frontier, they would have to do the same. But since the military successes of Ivan III against Novgorod and Poland-Lithuania, the Russians were becoming stronger and more confident. Even more so when in 1514 they seized the strategic city of Smolensk from Lithuania. The city claimed that Russian payments made to Crimea had been for their alliance in the war against Poland-Lithuania. Once Moscow had signed a treaty with Poland and once Crimean raids into Poland had stopped, the Grand Prince no longer felt obliged to continue the payments. The Crimeans continued to try and persuade Vasili to help them seize control of Astrakhan, but the Grand Prince had no intention of ever doing so. Crimean-Tatar relations further deteriorated as they competed for influence in Kazan. In 1518, after the death of Khan Mohammed Amin, Vasili III brought forth his own candidate to the throne, Shah Ali, and quickly orchestrated his accession. The new Khan, however, was both greedy and cowardly and soon became very unpopular in Kazan. Also, as he came from branch of the clan of Genghis Khan who were traditionally enemies of the Jirai dynasty, his accession was opposed by the Crimean Khan, Muhammad Jirai. Whereas not long before Crimea had cooperated with Moscow and Kazan, the two sides were now rivals for control of the city. Mohammed Jirai was more than willing to respond to calls from the Kazanis to help find an alternative ruler. As a consequence, Kazan underwent further political turbulence with multiple coups in the late 1510s and 1520s. As Crimean Muscovite relations further degenerated, raiding parties from Crimea escalated their at attacks on the southern frontiers of Muscovy, and the power struggle for Kazan became more intense. In 1521, Shah Ali was deposed in a revolt, and his place on the throne taken by Sahib Jirai, the son of Mengri Jirai. Sahib Jirai's army then advanced on Moscow from the Volga, raiding Nizhny Novgorod and Vladimir en route, while Muhammad Jirai led a separate Crimean army from the south right to the outskirts of Moscow. The Tatars ravaged the area through which they traveled and took thousands of Russians captive, leaving a deep imprint in the minds of the Muscovites. To the rulers of Muscovy, it was clear that the threat from the south and the east was as serious as ever, and that they must be ready for war at any time. Fortunately for the Russians, Mohammed Jurai soon overreached. In an expedition in 1523 to attempt the overthrow of the Khan of Astrakhan, Mohammed Jurai was defeated by an army of the Nogai Horde. He and both his sons were killed, which inevitably weakened the Crimean Khanate. For the next nine years, the Crimean Khans were unwilling to provide enough direct support to keep Sahib Jurai secure on the throne of Kazan. Their power in Crimea itself was even limited, too, as they were beset by court intrigue. In Kazan, Sahib Jurai abdicated his throne in favor of a nephew and placed the city under Ottoman protection. Then, with Ottoman support, he began a bid for the Crimean throne. In 1523 the Ottomans were able to install Sahib Jirai as Khan of Crimea, beginning a period of particularly close Crimean-Ottoman relations. Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent provided Sahib with a large entourage of guards to ensure his personal protection and reduce the power of unruly nobles. This encouraged Sahib to take a more autocratic line and to enlarge his army. At the same time, Grand Prince Vasili also cultivated good relations with Istanbul, although for the Sultans, Russia was not their first priority. Their main attention was focused elsewhere, in the Mediterranean, Balkans and the Middle East. What was important for the Turks was to support trade between the Sultanate and Russia, and to discourage Moscow from allying with their rivals in Eastern Europe. In November 1533, Grand Prince Vasily III, while hunting on horseback, suddenly became ill. He returned to Moscow and died a few days later. In previous years, the death of the Grand Prince would threaten instability or even a civil war over the succession. But by now the rules of succession had changed and become clearer a designated son of the prince would receive both the crown and all the lands of muscovy rather than them being divided between various sons as had been the case before the chosen successor Vasily's son ivan was just an infant and so a period of regency was inevitable But when the young prince came of age and took hold of the reins of power, he became one of the most famous Russian rulers of all time, Ivan IV, also known as Ivan the Terrible. My name is Karl Reilert and you've been listening to the A History of Europe Key Battles podcast. As always, it would be great to hear from you. You can get in touch on the Facebook page or on Twitter at Europe KB, KB for Key Battles, or on the blog www.historyeurope.net or you can write to me directly to the email address carl at historyeurope.net Please join me next week for the early years of the reign of Ivan the Terrible and for the siege of Kazan of 1552. Until then, all the best and goodbye.